Welcome to The Mess, 150 years of Cape Breton Highlander tradition. I am your host, Major Jason Doyle. A mess, or a mess hall, is where the military personnel eat and socialize. But this cafeteria of sorts means so much more to those who serve. For the Cape Breton Highlanders, the mess is the heartbeat of the unit, where stories and traditions of the Highlanders are shared and passed down. Where the restrictive social hierarchies of the military are loosened. Where music, laughs, and tears are had. And where lifelong friendships begin. Without hyperbole, I can honestly say that I don't recall not enjoying everything. I think we have to enhance our efforts to ensure that that proud history of a Cape Breton Highland Army Regiment is maintained and well known. It's something that I really feel there's a bond with people who served in the Highlanders together. What does it mean to you to be a Highlander? Ooh, uh, pride, honor, a sense of duty, definitely one of the best things that ever happened to me, definitely. This is retired Colonel Ian McIntyre from Sydney. When Ian joined the Cape Breton Highlanders in 1956, the battalion was in a bit of turmoil, but we'll get to that later. Can you explain what mess life is yeah, I think it's probably one of the more misnamed facets of any item on earth because the mess is never really in a mess. The orderly room, it should be called the mess and maybe the mess should be called your... Anyway, but the mess, I think, incorporates the family aspect. It brings people together in a non-training environment and it gives you a chance to speak to your superiors and subordinates. And it also gives you the opportunity once in a while to get a little bit under the weather and try to tell your boss how he should be doing his or her job and still not being fired. Belonging to a mess, and the officer's mess in particular, was a place where you could meet socially and get to know people from other units, in Victoria Park in particular, and you could get things done in the mess that you couldn't get done on a normal training night. You could see your, your comrade in the service battalion and or the engineers and get together and plan collective efforts that saved them time and money and saved you time and money at the same time. If you ever watch a mess dinner or something and the pipes and drums march in, they play a couple of sets and then they're on their way out. But on the way out, they start to play the black bear. You get to that certain point in the tune and everyone in the room just gets up and yells all at the same time. It brings everybody's spirits up, and it's a great feeling when you're the one who gets to do that. A home away from home is how I would initially describe a mess. A mess is one of those areas, those places that no matter on what base, whether you're on operation, whether you're posted around Canada, that you can always go to and feel at home and always know that you can relax after a hard day at the office, so to speak. One of the other things that I realized very early in my career is that the mess is also a fantastic opportunity to network within a garrison or within a base. You have an opportunity to see other members from other units, to speak to them more in a, an informal setting as opposed to the formalities that surround military life. 
and it gives you an opportunity to let your hair down with other members and really kind of engage on a more personal level than you would necessarily in the lines of a unit. That's quite true. That's the whole idea. It's a home away from home. As I used to tell with people who served within the garrison, keep in mind that wherever you're at in this great country of ours, whether it be from Victoria, B.C. to St. John's, Newfoundland, or up in Inuvik, you've got a place to go because wherever there's a military base, there's a mess. And you can go in, and as John said, you can feel comfortable. You're with colleagues. You have something that you can talk about with somebody else. It's an amazing feeling. In my civilian job, I managed to cover the country quite a bit, and I would go to the various messes when I got into the city, find out where the mess was, and of course, there's different messes. Every unit, in some cases, has a mess. You go in, you talk to their people, and you're very well accepted. And everybody feels at home with each other. And I think that's so very important, particularly in the military. So you still run into those people that you served with? I do, actually. I, I bumped into one yesterday. He was getting some blood work at the hospital, and so was I, just routine stuff. And we had a great chat. He had joined in the late 70s. He's a bit older than me. And we had a chat about all the folks that we knew and changes in, in the unit. It's something that I really feel there's a bond with people who served in the Highlanders together. When you look at the history of the unit, at part, you're looking at the history of Kibretan. When you talk about the 94th, which was the first battalion in our lineage, and you think about the men that came in, they, most of them were from the uh, Duke of Argyle's estate in Scotland. With Confederation in 1867, all the militia units in Canada were reorganized to come under the new federal government. Many of them had served in years past. Believe it or not, some of them had served in the Boer War. Some of them, if I'm not mistaken, may very well have served in the Fenian raids in Upper Canada after the Civil War in the United States. And in our case here, we had a number of militia units throughout the island that were disbanded, and a new unit was created under the new government of the day, and that was the Victoria Provisional Battalion of Infantry. Victoria, Victoria County, provisional meaning was temporary, and after a few years, it became a full-time battalion. Come along the First World War, a Highland Battalion was formed in the province of Nova Scotia. And there was from Nova Scotia what was called the Highland Brigade. A Royal Canadian Regiment captain, Captain Borden, toured the province and raised the Nova Scotia Highland Brigade. The brigade went overseas in the First World War and it was so successful that they decided they would form three new Highland Battalions in Nova Scotia. And one of them was assigned to Cape Breton, which was known as the 185th Cape Breton Highlanders. The old militia unit did not go overseas. They left on home guard. Uh, guarding the steel plant and the mines. So while the 185th Cape Breton Highlanders did go overseas, but unfortunately with the casualties that were created in the First World War, they needed a reserve of soldiers back in England to replace the casualties that happened at the front. So our Cape Breton Highlanders did not go overseas, which is still part of our tradition today. 
But the 85th Nova Scotia Highlanders did get to the front and they used a lot of Cape Britainers that were still back in England to fill the vacancies uh, spots. And one battalion, reinforced by folks from the others, entered the fray and played a great role in Vimy Ridge. After the war in 1920, they decided that the Victoria Battalion of Infantry would be disbanded and they would be known as the Cape Breton Highlanders. And the Cape Breton Highlanders, as we know today, served in the Second World War from the very beginning, 1939, right up to 1946. I don't have the casualty rates for the First World War, which were quite high, but the Second World War, we lost 201 Cape Breton Highlanders. Is there any stories that you can think of that you could tell that would be applicable to something like this? You know, the first story that I always think of when I think of the mess was the late Steve Cavanaugh. He would walk home from the mess in Victoria Park, which is on one side of Sydney, and he lived in Westmount, walking across the harbour at night in his kilt and everything else, and saying it was squishy in the middle. Now, I don't know how true that is, or and Steve always told that story, and I always got a good chuckle out of that and stuff like that. I would believe anything about Steve, because he was a very fine human being, a very fine officer. He and I were the two that were invited into the Cape Breton Highlanders. Steve was going to succeed me when my term was over. An amazing human being, and it was an honor to wear the same cap badge, yeah. And I wouldn't doubt that he did walk across the harbor. One of the things that was in their mess for a long, long time, and it's now moved to our museum, is our eagle. Can you explain what the eagle was? Yes, yes, yes. The last battle of the Cape Breton Highlanders in World War II was in the northern Netherlands city of Delcile. And although it was the last week of the war, it was a particularly bloody battle. 19 Highlanders killed and 45 or so wounded. That eagle hung in, some say the SS headquarters in Delfseel, and others just say in the Nazi German headquarters in Delfseel. I've seen a picture of it on a postcard when the Germans were still in control, and it was a beautiful masterpiece of work. It's carved from one piece of wood. However, they managed to get that on the ship and back to Cape Breton is a legend in itself. It's probably known by a few people that are now gone, but it certainly was never documented. Nobody knows it got here. I've never actually heard the story of how we got, no one will talk about no. how it got here. No. I know that the War Museum has asked for it and yes. have uh, been politely denied. Yes. Um, to describe it, you said it's one piece of wood. Yeah, it's one of the Nazi emblems, an eagle, and the eagle in its talons is holding the swastika. And the eagle's wings were probably about six feet across. We still have it in our museum. That hurt me, taking that out of the mess. There for 73 years, but I guess they call that moderation or something. <laughs> and you start to look at it and it becomes almost like turning the pages of a history book. 
when you go through each of the units and the conflicts that they served in. And it's very proud when you put that Glengarry on to know the history that's behind the unit. Remember that turmoil I mentioned earlier? In 1954, the government decided to change things up and reorganize the Cape Breton Highlanders into the 2nd Battalion, Nova Scotia Highlanders, Cape Breton. After the war, we went back to reserve militia status again, and that lasted right up until about 1953, when they decided that they would not have three Highland battalions in the province of Nova Scotia. There was the Cape Breton Highlanders, the Picto Highlanders, and the North Nova Scotia Highlanders. They said, you guys get together and create one new unit, which was very difficult to do. We finally did, and we're known as the Nova Scotia Highlanders. Ours was the 2nd Battalion, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia Highlanders. This decision was not found to be favorable by any of the members of the unit. When we were designated 2nd Battalion, Nova Scotia Highlanders, Cape Breton, I guess there was a lot of controversy that probably shouldn't have went that route when we were originally Cape Breton Highlanders. Locally and outside of Cape Breton, if you asked guys that had served in the battalion, even if they had been after 1954, it was always CBH or Cape Breton Highlanders, I remember as a young officer, I wrote down two in this age, and I forgot to put the CB in brackets, the CO at the time, and I had a lively discussion. It was very one way, and uh, told me the importance of why that CB is there. And do you know, that was another fight. Initially, in 1954, we were designated 2nd Battalion of the Nova Scotia Highlanders. The CO of the then unit, Colonel Angus Norm MacDonald, he had already fought it, but they said, no, we want something distinguishing. We won Cape Breton onto it. Uh, that lasted for about 60 years as 2nd Battalion Nova Scotia Highlanders. Then in 2011, it was decided that we would get our original name back, Cape Breton Highlanders which is what we are today. So we've come full circle from the 1871 right up until 2011. I was surprised as heck that we were getting our name and our hat badge back. And when I thought about it, the efforts put forth by men like Joe Gillis at the time, who was CEO of the battalion, and Colonel Ian McIntyre, that effort to me had to be recognized. If I ever did anything in my life, or ever will accomplish anything more, that was the most beautiful thing in which I was involved. I happened to be in the right spot. I was serving as honorary lieutenant colonel to the commanding officer of the then 2nd Nova Scotia Highlanders. And there was a unit in Halifax had been reactivated. They had been stricken from the order of battle in one of the many reorganizations. So they were, after a 30-year campaign by an ex-member, they were granted once more unit status. So we decided to give it a hook. 
We had a fantastic amount of assistance. We had ex-Cape Breton Highlanders and friends of coming literally out of the woodwork, guys we didn't even know. We got lucky, and in January 2011, we were once more on the orbit, the order of battle, if you will, as the Cape Breton Highlanders. So it was kind of gratifying to see the unit go back and take on the original name. But a lot of the work, you know, I have to say, went to Lieutenant Colonel Joe Gillis. He put pen to paper and started writing letters to everybody he could think of. Most of us probably thought it would be futile, that it wouldn't come to anything, because I'm sure the Chief of Defense Staff had other priorities on his plate. I think it was kind of gratifying to see that somebody took the bull by the horn, so he should be commended on starting that ball rolling, and he had a lot of support from a lot of people up the line. The first thing I said, what am I going to do to be able to show the significance of what this means? And what I did was I designed the Cape Breton Highlanders hat badge. It's six feet long and five feet wide. There's 68,371 stitches in it, all various colors. It depicts the hat badge perfectly. And I presented it at the officer's mess in 2012. We had five members of the original Cape Breton Highlanders from World War II were present. A number of them, unfortunately, have passed away since. We unveiled the tapestry for everyone. It's an eye-catcher, I must admit. And I told them that the top stitch in the right-hand corner, the very top stitch, is empty. And I said it's remaining empty in memory of the boys that didn't come home. I would say the same culture is still there. And one of the reasons that I would say that is because when I joined, and I was just a 17-year-old wet-behind-the-ears private, there were people who were coming in, RSS or regular support staff, and they were regular forces working with us, and they told us about their culture. Second War veterans that I had served with when I first came in, there was a couple that were still serving. Joda Buck McIntyre was still serving. Leo McIntyre had just retired. But they would all come up. They would come to the mess, so they'd be there all the time. And in the 50s, where did the battalion have companies? Where were they located at? North Sydney, Glace Bay. Sydney had two companies, support and headquarters. New Waterford also had a company. And everyone trained together and was able to... Yeah, actually, at summer camp in 1957, I recall having a battalion exercise every day. Where would those summer camps take place? That was in New Brunswick, Camp Utopia, very close to the border side of St. George and the... Uh, you know, we don't realize how lucky we are to live in this great little island. It's a beautiful spot to live. It's a beautiful spot to raise a family. It's so important to us. And we've done our share. There's no doubt about it. I've always found a very special connection between ourselves and Newfoundlanders. I served with a number of guys with the Royal Noofs. There seems to be a camaraderie there that's unwritten, unseen. It's almost like a magnetic attraction. If they're on a garrison, they'll find each other, guaranteed. It's a feeling of great pride, and especially for me, I traveled extensively, and everywhere I went, people associated me with being a Cape Breton Highlander. Myself and many others thought of ourselves as Cape Breton Highlanders, so we were more than proud that Cape Breton Highlander rose again. A few things changed, but overall, the culture of being Highlanders 
remains the same. And it's funny because when I do the ode to the Haggis, there are young soldiers there and these young men and women and say to me, you were in the Highlanders? And I'll get that a little bit every now and then. And I'll get the odd question of what was that like? And it really is kind of cool to show that there's this connection. We don't have anybody who goes back 150 years, but we have had people up until recently who went back to World War II. So it's pretty amazing when you think about that, that culture that pride is continuing. It's gonna alter a little bit culturally as people change language styles and things, but that pride is not going to go away. I found that when I would meet people from Highland units across the country, or overseas, British units, I found that there was something special about being a Highlander. And in my heart, it was always something very special about continuing the legacy of the Cape Breton Highlanders. We have people who join from all walks of life, every ethnic group. We have men and women who join. We have people from all different backgrounds. And one thing I notice when they're done of their training is they're very proud to be Highlanders. You'll find that Highland regiments in general are very individualistic. We wear different uniforms. We have pipes and drums rather than brass and fife and that type of thing. And as a result, the pipe major almost has the role that the bard had in the clan system. He, or now she, keeps the history of the regiment. So there are some little things in there that are actually big things that make us feel a little bit more like a family as well as a regiment. And there's something very special about being a Highlander. Without hyperbole, I can honestly say that I don't recall not enjoying everything. I'm sure there were times that I might have been scrapping with headquarters, but if you don't do that, you don't get anything done. In your mind, what's the importance of the Cape Breton Highlanders Association? Cape Breton Highlanders Association can serve in many ways, in particular, when I was there as a lieutenant and a captain, I assisted in the Cape Breton Highlanders reunions. They had them every year after a certain time. And I remember in Glace Bay and Sydney Mines, all these fellows who were come back from war, actual war, 1945. I got to admire them then, and things have changed, the situations have changed, but even now we have people like Ted Slaney, who was in the war, and recently Paul Weil, who just passed away. And those guys give me great inspiration. The history of the CBH is very important. And the work of the legacy is carried on by the Cape Breton Highlanders Association. And both of them deserve credit. Now, the legacy of the Cape Breton Highlanders is in the history of the accomplishments of what the soldiers in the reserve unit have done since the Second World War. and. I'm not sure that the entire Cape Breton public is as aware of the legacy as they should be. And that's why I am going to advocate using all means of communication and all means of media to continue to bring the accomplishments of the Cape Breton Highlanders to the people of our island. I think we have to enhance our efforts to ensure that that proud history of a Cape Breton Highlands Army Regiment is maintained and well known.
You have been listening to The Mess, commemorating 150 years of Cape Breton Highlanders tradition. To continue participating in our 150th anniversary celebrations, check out shapingofcanada.ca. To learn how you can become a Highlander and join us at The Mess, visit our page on the Canadian Forces website or join us on Facebook at the Cape Breton Highlanders Association page.